Yeah, we've been singing that song. It's been pretty good as we've been going through and uh, and singing it on Sunday nights in our, our Holy Spirit study. It's been pretty fun. So I'm glad I told Tim we need to get that thing in the morning so people can hear it. Uh, it's kind of a good review of the whole chapter. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 11 where we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31. And some of you may be saying, oh, sure. Uh, has he ever preached a text that big in his life? Well, Lord willing, we will this morning. I did it the first hour, barely. I went over a couple minutes, but who's counting? But the text this morning is a great text because it teaches us a an important major lesson. And that lesson is that the saints triumph by faith. That's what we learn as we go through. And the author of Hebrews has obviously collected many names. And I think he wants us to kind of take it in one big gulp. Yes, I could, you know, preach probably a couple years on this chapter and just go really slow and plumb the depths of all these cool people in their lives and successes and failures. But but he uh, assembles them in kind of a, a rapid fire. So we're just kind of like blows of a hammer driving into us the the necessity of faith. And that's why he says earlier in the end of chapter 10, if you, if you don't have faith, you can't please God. You've, you have to have faith. And so there is this strong exhortation that we need to live by faith because if we don't, God has no pleasure in us. And then we have this chapter just full of people who are examples to one degree of an, or another of faith. Now, I just want you to know that as we look at this text today, we're going to be looking at nine notable saints who triumph by faith. And I know you're saying, well, I thought the sermon title was seven. Well, that is the sermon title, but we're going to look at nine. Uh, when I was, uh, when I put my sermon titles together about six months in advance for people who want to know, and, um, and, and I missed two people who are implied and you'll see who they are when we get there. Three people are actually implied and not mentioned specifically. I caught one of them. So uh, six people are mentioned by name. Three names are implied and and uh, two of those names are going to combine together in one point this morning. So as we go through here, if you're thinking, well, I wish you could talk a little longer. We're just going to save all the application really for the end. And uh, I'm just going to survey all these people. I think that's why the author of Hebrews did it this way. So we're just kind of reminded, 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 and then we'll just stop a little bit at the end and talk about lessons we can learn about living by faith uh, and what that means for us as New Testament believers. The first point, uh, and we're going to, we're not going to read the whole text just because of time, but we'll read it as we go through. Abraham is your example of faith. That's point number one. And we looked at him last week and Abraham's such a a fun guy to study. He's He's done some incredible things, and the author of Hebrews saves uh, really his greatest act of faith until the section we're looking at this morning, um, that really the the act that gave him the title Father of Faith. And, uh, and the first thing that I want to point out out of four that I think are emphasized here is that Abraham was willing to offer up his son by faith. If you look at the first part of verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, that's just an amazing thing. You know, when you read the story, it's just an amazing thing. You know, I can't imagine offering up my son. It just 
it just is an amazing thought to think that Abraham did that so willingly and so readily when he knew it was God's will, he just acted in faith. The, the account is gripping to read. Uh, I'll just read the first three verses of Genesis 22, verses 1 through 3, where it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. That is just, that's just amazing to think that he would do that. And the point I want to make here is he just... He was just willing to do it. I, uh, that's just a huge thing, isn't it? To, to, just, to go sacrifice your son is a burnt offering. Cremation, no doubt. The second thing, Abraham was willing to offer up his only son by faith. Now, if you look at the middle of verse 17, it says, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. Well, the phrase only begotten son works with some people like with Jesus, who was God's only begotten son. But the phrase only begotten son is kind of a, it's not really a good translation all the time. Like, like here, because Abraham had other sons, didn't he? Uh, Ishmael was his son, and then later on, through his wife Keturah, he had six other sons, according to Genesis 25, verses 1 through 3. So the word should better be translated unique, special, incomparable, or one of a kind. One of a kind. And of course, Isaac was that because he was miraculously conceived. Not only that, he was the only son of Sarah. Not only that, he was the son of promise, and this made him unique and one of a kind. So he not only sacrificed his son, which would have been been willing to sacrifice his son, which would have been willing, you know, just to be willing to do that was, was incredible. He was also willing to do that knowing the uniqueness of Isaac and how special he was and how he was miraculously conceived and chosen by God. And yet he was still willing to do that. Third, Abraham was willing to offer up not only his son, not only his only son, but the son of promise. I mean, it says in verse 18, if you look there, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. Quoting Genesis 21, 12. God made it clear. It is through Isaac and Isaac alone that you will have with Sarah that your promise will be fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant. And yet... You would think that Mo, or Abraham would think, well, if I kill Isaac, then that's going to put an end to the promise. I mean, you said that in me, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And, and if I kill Isaac, then how is my line going to continue through him? It just can't work. And yet he moved forward in faith. Which brings us to our fourth point. Why was he able to do this? Fourthly, because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, believing that God would raise him from the dead. 
Verse 19 says, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he received him, that is Isaac, back as a type. Now, put, keep in mind, there is nothing mentioned of resurrection up to this point in the Bible. Abraham knew nothing of resurrection. But what he thought was, well, okay, I know God gave me this covenant. He's told me several times. I know Isaac is the promised child through whom the covenant will be fulfilled. I know God wants me to kill him. So the only thing that could happen, the only way this can work is after I kill him, God must be planning to raise him from the dead. And you see that in the text, you know, it's just, it's so gripping. And it's Genesis, I think 22 verse five, where the, the, you know, they go and he tells the servants, you wait here and me and the lad will return to you. He knows he's going to go kill him. But he says, we will return to you because he's already got it settled in his mind. God's going to raise him from the dead. This is going to be amazing. And right before he plunges the knife into his son, his only son whom he loves, then there is that voice, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. For now I know that you fear me. That is just, ah. And then he looks and behold, there is a, A ram caught in the thicket. And that ram becomes a substitute for Isaac. Here it says that he received him, that's Isaac, back as a type. A type is a person or thing in the Old Testament that prefigures Christ. It's kind of a a picture or partial fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment, which would be in Christ. For instance, Isaac actually didn't die, but he had the sentence of death upon him, didn't he? And was rescued from that sentence of death. And so in that way, he was rescued from death. But think about this. He is a type because Isaac was unique, a one of a kind son, and so was Jesus. Isaac was the son of promise and so was Jesus. Isaac was miraculously conceived and so was Jesus. Isaac was the beloved son of Abraham. Jesus was the beloved son of God. Isaac had the sentence of death upon him and was rescued by God's provision. Jesus actually died and was resurrected from the dead. And when it says here that he received him back as a type, that word type in the Greek is parable. He received him back as a parable, a living illustration of the redemption and salvation we would receive in Christ. And it is amazing that Abraham came to the logical conclusion that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. And it reveals that Abraham believed that God could do anything. And even though he had no revelation, no previous knowledge, had never even heard of that possibility happening, he logically concluded it based off of what he knew about the character and nature of God and the promises of God. And it was the only solution he in his mind could come up with. I'm going to kill my son and then God's going to make him alive again. I mean, he's all powerful. He's God. He can do it. And so he acted in faith. And that is why he is here and that is why he is an example to us because he was unflinching in his obedience. 
even in the face of something so grim as sacrificing your own son. Secondly, Isaac is your example of faith. Look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Now, when you recall the story of Isaac, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't really remember any like, you know, major faith things that Isaac did. And there isn't, there isn't. But he's mentioned here because Isaac demonstrated his faith when he blessed Jacob and Esau. That's when he demonstrated his faith. Why? Because Isaac believed in the promise God made to Abraham. It never was fulfilled during Abraham's life, and it was never fulfilled during all his life. But even though he and Abraham lived to an old age, Abraham was dead. Now he's old, and he's about ready to die. He still believes the promise of God, and that's why he's here. Though all those years have gone by and nothing's been fulfilled, yet he still believes. And it's demonstrated in the fact that he blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, granted, when you remember the story, um, uh, right in Genesis 25, verses 23, uh, God told Rebekah that two nations would be in her womb and the younger uh, would rule over the older, which, you know, was backwards. And they knew that. Not only that, they also knew from the text that Jacob had the rights of the firstborn because uh, he got it with a bowl of soup. He purchased it with a bowl of soup. So not only did he have the prophecy that God said Jacob's going to be preeminent, but he had the rights of the firstborn, which means he should receive the rights of the firstborn and be blessed like the firstborn. But Isaac, not wanting Jacob to be preeminent, was still going to bless Isaac. And that's when Rebecca and Jacob got together and deceived Isaac to make sure He got what was rightfully coming to him. Granted, their action was wrong. But though Isaac did not um, come around to Jacob being uh, the chosen one until after he got angry and trembled and then realized, you know what, this is God's will. The prophecy said so. He had the rights of the firstborn. And he told Esau when Esau was moping because he couldn't get the blessing of the firstborn. He said, now he will be blessed. He will be blessed. And because he believed that the promise God gave to Abraham was going to happen, even after all those years, he appears here. Not only that, third, Jacob is your example of faith. And again, when you think of Jacob, you kind of think of all of his deception, don't you? I mean, you know, his name is deceiver and that's what he did. You think of how he was kind of conniving, but you know, he, he wasn't all that wicked his whole life. And he did demonstrate some faith. And this is where we see it at several points for in particular one, Jacob believed the prophecy that he was to rule his brother. He believed that. And it is demonstrated secondly, that he wanted the blessing of the firstborn to go along with that prophecy. And so he was looking for an opportunity to get that birthright. And at the opportune time when his brother said, I'm going to die, which is what every teenager says when they're hungry. Um, He thought, well, if you give me your birthright, I'll give you this bowl of soup. And he says, fine. And so Esau despised his birthright. And in despising it, Jacob then had the rights of the firstborn. Why? Because he believed in the promise given to Abraham. Third, Jacob's desire for blessing continued on the rest of his life. I mean, remember when he met the angel of the Lord, he tackled him. Now, when you think about that, that is scary. 
most people, when they saw angels, hit the ground, you know, did a face plant, and the angel always had to say, do not be afraid. Jacob sees the angel and tackles him. This is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, who killed, you know, 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And fourth, if you look at verse 21 in our text, Hebrews 11, verse 21, it says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons uh, sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. The, The promise was not fulfilled all Abraham's life, all Isaac's life, all Jacob's life. And yet at his death, he still blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, believing the promise would be fulfilled. And that's why he's here because he believed in the promise. For Joseph is your example for faith. Look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. We just sang about it. Now you think, well, is that kind of a big deal? Yeah, that's a big deal because way back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, when you go into the foreign land, your people are going to be enslaved there for 400 years. And so Joseph, you know, with the people all of Israel, the sons of Jacob ended up going there and they had been there a while and, and living in peace. They weren't enslaved during the time of Joseph. He was ruler of all Egypt. And and so, you know, they were prospering during that short time. But as soon as he died, things changed. And Joseph knew that they were going to be there hundreds of more years. And yet knowing they would be there that whole time still said, listen, When we leave, which implies what? He believed the promise of God. He believed they would be there 400 years and he would believe they'd go out and they would inherit the promised lands. He says, I want my bones in the promised land. So when I, when you leave, you take my remains with you. And they did. And so that's why he's here because he believed the promise God made to Abraham, though many years had gone by. Fifth, Amram and Jochebed are your examples of faith. And you're thinking, well, I don't really see them there. Well, they're not really mentioned by name. And that's why I missed them. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty three. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. There you go. Two people implied there, not specifically mentioned, um, but that's it. And they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, notice the text says by faith, but when Moses was an infant, he wasn't living by faith and he didn't disobey the king's edict as an infant either. That was his parents. Now, we might think it's kind of strange to say that they disobeyed because they saw that he was a beautiful child. I mean, what parent thinks their kid is ugly? I mean, even if your kid looks like Yoda, you think they're beautiful. And sometimes they do look like Yoda when they first come out. The word translated beautiful, though, can also mean favored by God. And uh, we know this because in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, as Stephen is also recounting the story of Moses, he says he was beautiful and favored by God. And so Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents, must have come to the conclusion by faith that God had a special plan for Moses. And so they risked their lives. They hid him for three months, and I think very strategically, they they would know, they would know where, and this is just, 
I just uh, sermons are just begging to be preached from her. They know that where Pharaoh's daughter would come and bathe. And Pharaoh's daughter would never come and bathe where there was a bunch of men. Well, the men were one that were killing the children. So they take the kid, they take it down to the river and they put it in the reeds. And the reason, why do you put it in the reeds so the child doesn't float away? in that basket covered with pitch, probably hoping that the baby would cry and she would hear. And, and the story is great. I mean, you remember how it is. And then as soon as, you know, they find the baby and it's, he is beautiful. Look how cute he is. And out pops Moses' sister. Do you want me to fetch one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you? Yes. Go get mom. And then, you know, Pharaoh's daughter says, I want you to nurse this kid. Okay. And I'm paying you. All right. <laughs> so she gets to raise him uh, during his younger years. And it was a great um, blessing that God pulled out of there. Now, the one thing I, which is unique here, and we need to be careful of it, is that we don't, from what we know, Moses' parents had no special revelation. And I just want to just make sure that... Um, I say that though we are to live by faith, when God's word is not clear about something, even though we know that God could do something and it's within the realm of what fits into his character and nature and maybe even some general promises and we should trust him by faith, yet he may not always do it like we want. You know, you pray for that child who is sick to get better and they don't and they die. Or you pray for that, you know, parent who doesn't know the Lord to come to the Lord and they don't and they die. And you know that it doesn't, it's not against God's will and certainly fits into his character and his nature. And you had faith and you believe God was going to do it. And then it didn't happen. That's why Jesus said, we need to pray, not my will, but thine be done. So whenever we're having faith and we should, and we're having faith outside of the realm of what God has specifically stated, we need to not be angry at God because he doesn't do our will. He's going to do his will. But they were examples in that they believed God was, had a plan for Moses and it just so happened he did. And they risked their lives and they carried on in faith. And so that's why they're here. Six, Moses is your example of faith. And there's eight things I plucked out of here. One, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, spoke at length about Moses and said in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, but when he was approaching the age of four, he entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, which tells us that when Moses was 40, even though he had grown up for 40 years as nobility, trained in Egypt, I mean, he's saturated in the luxury, nobility, the upper class of the upper class in Egypt, Even though he has all that privilege, he begins to think of himself as an Israelite, not as Egyptian. He went and visited his brothers. And in doing that, he made a decision to turn from being the son of Pharaoh's daughter to an Israelite. Secondly, he showed faith 
and that he considered that the suffering with the people of God was better than enjoying the riches apart from them. Look at verse 25. It says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. God called him to deliver the people. He didn't like the idea. The Israelites didn't like the idea and Pharaoh didn't like the idea. But God did. And so he decided to associate himself with these grumbling, complaining, enslaved people who didn't like him in order to do them good. Because God said so. And that took huge faith. He turned his back on all the luxury and power and indulgence that Egypt could offer to associate himself with lowly brethren. And in turning in faith to God, he really turned his back on the world. And in that way, he is an example of everybody who turns to God. You have to turn your back on the world. Three, look at the end of verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses didn't know who Jesus was specifically, but he knew there would be a redeemer. We've learned that from Adam and Eve and Abel and Enoch. Even way back then, they knew that the the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And they were looking forward to that. He understood that God was going to redeem Israel from Egypt because it was promised to Moses specifically. And he was willing to submit to reproach and persecution with the people of God. He valued his brother's freedom from slavery as more important than luxury, than treasure. Their redemption to him was more important than his personal ease and wealth. And that is why he stepped out in faith and that is why he is an example. And four, he was looking to the reward. I mean, if you look at the end of verse 26, it says, you know, by faith, uh, uh, you know, he was looking to this reward. What reward? The heavenly one. The heavenly one. Just like Abraham was looking to that city whose builder and architect is God. And so Moses, too, was carrying on in great faith. And when all those people were picking on him and when everybody was complaining and when all that was going on in his life, it just I mean, he went through a lot. He wasn't looking for I can't wait to get out into the desert with two million grumblers. That's not where he was looking. He was looking beyond the horizon into glory. And so he looked forward to the reward by faith. Five, he didn't fear the wrath of the king, but endured exile. And there's a difficulty here. And if you read the text in Exodus chapter two, verses 13 through 15, it says that after Moses killed the Egyptian, it became known to Pharaoh and he was afraid. So he fled. Yet our text says... By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And you may be thinking, well, did he fear him or not? Well, there's some solutions here, and let me give you them. One, he was maybe scared at first, but later grew strong in faith and boldly left Egypt without any fear of the king's wrath against him for killing the Egyptian. A possibility, but probably not. He was scared of the king's wrath for killing the Egyptian, but was not fearful of the king's wrath concerning his departure from Egypt. You know, it would have been a huge offense to say, 
for 40 years, I've been nobility in Egypt, but I'm rejecting you and all that you have given me to go be a shepherd in the desert. That would have been a huge offense, but it could have been he didn't fear that wrath. After Moses was 40 years in the desert, he did not fear the wrath of the king when he returned to Egypt to boldly and repeatedly demand that Pharaoh let Israel leave. And then he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And I think that's probably what's in view here. When they all left Egypt, he didn't fear the wrath of the king. After Israel left, they were trapped at the Red Sea. Moses had no fear of Pharaoh's uh, wrath against them. And Pharaoh's army came against them. And Moses cried out. And God says, well, what are you doing standing there, man? Go through the sea. It's hard to say which is true, but uh, what, what he's referring to here. But probably, um, probably a reference to his not fearing the wrath of the king in his second departure. But again, I can't say, but all work. Six, Moses saw God, the God of Abraham with the eye of faith. You know, the latter part of verse 27 says, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And granted, he saw the manifestation of God in the burning bush. Um, and later on, he saw him, remember when he said, show me your glory. And God put him in the cleft of the rock and went by and had his glory pass in front of him. And that was later on. But, uh, it's, you know, what does it mean? He endured I think that's the key here. He endured what? He endured living in the desert. He endured coming back and confronting Pharaoh, going through the plagues, having his people turn against him, having Pharaoh turn against him, having to lead them through, having them complain and complain and complain and complain. Only for 40 years, complain and complain. You know, how, how do you deal with that much pressure? You turn to God. You see the God who is unseen. That's how you endure. You know, one of the clear indicators that someone is a lover of God is when trials come into their life, they run to God. Their prayer life really gets enhanced and they just have sweet fellowship with God. I've talked to so many people who said, you know, I know this thing happened to me and it was really, really hard. And I hope it doesn't happen again, but I am so glad it did because I got so close with God when it did. There you have it. So he endured all that he had to go through as the kind of human deliverer that God had chosen because he saw him who was unseen by faith. Seven, Moses kept the Passover in faith. Verse 28 says, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Uh, he believed God was telling him the truth. He had faith that God wasn't kidding. When God says, I'm going to pass through the land and kill the firstborn. If you want to escape, get, get a lamb and kill it and do all the Passover regulations. And so he celebrated the Passover and told everybody else too. And it showed that he believed God in faith and eight Moses crossed the red sea by faith. You know, Moses uh, says in verse 29 of our text, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. The Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. I mean, think about that. Even when Moses stood there and God says, yeah, just go through. And the waters, you know, spread and heaped up and the wind came and dried out the, the bottom of the sea so that, you know, it wouldn't be slippery and muddy. Would you go in there? That'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? That would be scary. You okay, everybody, we're going into the sea. 
with the waters on the right and the left just kind of being held up there by God. You know, it would be a little unnerving, yet he led them all through and safe to the other side. And when Pharaoh's army pursued, they were all drowned. So Moses is our example of faith in those eight ways. Seven, Joshua is our example of faith. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. You know, the whole story of Joshua is so fun. You know, when they, they crossed... They crossed the Jordan and God again stopped up the waters and heaped them up. And they all went through on dry land. And the first city they encounter is Jericho. And God wants to teach them a lesson because they're going to have to conquer city after city in order to take the land that God had promised to Abraham. And so as they get to Jericho, God says, okay, I want you to do this. We're going to march around the city every day for seven days. I want everybody to be quiet. I want the priest to go on the front and blow trumpets and the men of war to go on the back. Now, when you have a couple million people, it takes a while to walk around a city, doesn't it? And, you know, they must have been thinking, trumpets? Trumpets? What's that going to do? We can like trumpet them to death? And what's that going to do? And you could have just, you could imagine the conversations that occurred the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, even the seventh day, right? You know, trumpets? And you know, the seventh day, they were probably marching all, they probably marched for about eight hours. You know, two million people around the, the city. You know, if it took an hour, I mean, they're marching all day long and people are going, oh man, what are we doing out here? Well, they had to believe a little bit, otherwise they wouldn't have been out there, right? And and Joshua led them. And then finally, they get around the seventh time on the seventh day. And the priests say, shout. And they shout and the walls just fall down. Oh, that worked. And then they sacked the city. The walls came tumbling down. But unlike the song, Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. God did. And so Joshua is our example of faith and trusting God, even when his commands seem a bit strange. Eight, Rahab is our example of faith. If you look at verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. This is recorded in Joshua too. When, when they were going into the land, they said, okay, well, let's, you know, go check out Jericho. So they sent spies in. To check it out. The king heard that there were spies. And so he heard they were staying at Rahab the harlot's house. And so he then sent and said, hey, hey, bring them out. But Rahab had come to believe that, you know what? I think the God of Israel is the true God. I think he's going to conquer Jericho. I think they're going to take over the land and I don't want to die. And so I'm going to hide the spies up on my roof. And so, oh, they already left and they snuck out the gate. She lied in order to protect them. And then she came up on the roof and said, okay, I just saved your life. You saved mine. They said, okay. And when they captured the city, they spared her, her family, and all their possessions. Then what's really amazing is then Salmon sees that Rahab is probably a looker. She's no longer plying her trade. She's now a believer in the God of Israel. And he marries her. He marries her and they give birth to a child named Boaz who later marries 
a woman named Ruth. And they give birth to a child named Obed. And Obed ends up fathering a child named Jesse. And Jesse ends up fathering a child named David. And from David's line, Jesus comes. So there she is, Rahab, who is our example of believing in the God of Israel and trusting that he would win out by faith. So when you look at all these people, what are some lessons that we can learn? And, and you know, there's plenty here. There's a lot more than we could even deal with. But let me just give you some of the things I, I see as we look at this text, some of the, the lessons we can learn about our faith and how we are to live our faith. And the first thing is, is, is faith that honors God goes forth in immediate, unflinching obedience. Not procrastinating, not maybe next year, not eventually, but a, a ready, immediate submission to the will of God. You know, if I were to ask you, is stubbornness a good quality? You'd probably say no, and rightly so, because, you know, stubbornness isn't good. I mean, people can't be reasoned with. They're stubborn. They're, they're unbendable. They're unflinching and and when it has to do with selfishness and contrary to the word of god it is it is bad it often appears in the scripture along with words like stubborn and stiff-necked or stubborn and obstinate or stubborn and unrepentant you know it's not a very good term but and there's kind of a a a godly stubbornness and it's really a synonym for faith faith is a stubborn trust that's what we learned earlier faith is the assurance of things so forth the conviction of things that say i know this is true i am not moving i believe this stubbornness stubbornness and you can imagine when when you know god tells abraham go sacrifice his son i'm sure he didn't tell his wife or anybody else, right? What would they have thought? You're out of your mind. This is the miracle son. He's the son of promise. You're going to kill him? What is wrong with you? He, He just marched forth in unflinching obedience in a very stubborn, dogged, determined way to submit himself to what God had said. In Calvary Bible Church, we need to have some stubborn faith like this. Some do or die commitment to the word of God and his promises so that all the world knows we follow God. You see, if you start picking and choosing how you're going to follow God, the world sees right through that and instantly you're just a hypocrite like all the other Christians. We need to be stubborn. We need to have resolve to just do what God says. And this doesn't mean we need to not listen to wise counsel or that we need to be impatient. And we need to make sure, yes, that God's word is telling us to do something because some people are very stubborn in their rebellion thinking it's the will of God. So we need to make sure we don't get confused. But when God is clear, then we just can't budge. We must be gracious, but we can't budge. We must be kind, but we can't budge. We must be loving, but we can't budge. There are times when I've had to stand up to friends because of some truth issue. 
There's times I've been in, in elders meetings when I just said, no, that is wrong. And you know what? It, everybody doesn't see it that way, but I know it's right. And it is not fun. It is very uncomfortable. But when you know something to be true, that's it. You burn me at the stake, but I'm not leaving my position. You know, recently, Britt Hume gave some advice to Tiger Woods and said, you know, Christianity had more to offer him than Buddhism. And it was true and it was good advice. But oh, 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 the secular media is still fuming about that. How dare he imply? I'm not implying. I'm saying it. I mean, you know, you, he didn't even mention the name Jesus. He just said Christianity and they get in a little froth. If you say Jesus, ah, you know, they're going to be like those people who started gnashing their teeth and stoned Stephen. You can see how it works. I mean, when I first came here, I was invited to the Burbank businessmen's whatever meeting to pray. So I was kind of like the token. Oh, he's a new pastor in town. We'll have him come pray. So. I prayed this big, long prayer and included a big section out of Daniel's prayer of repentance. <laughs> and when I finished, I said, I pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Whoa, I got I got flack from politicians and flack from offended Jews and flack from Muslims and flack from everybody. until I think they stopped the whole prayer thing altogether. We're never letting that happen. But are we going to be quiet because a a few vocal God haters say, we don't want you speaking in the name of Jesus. We don't want you talking. We don't want you cramming your Christianity down our throat. Now, let us tell you about evolution and let us tell you about our immoral lifestyles and how abortion's okay and homosexuality is okay. and, And let us tell you about all our false idols and everything freely. But you be quiet. No, no, we don't do that. You don't tell me how to think. You don't tell me what to speak. I do my own thing. So there is a need to look and just see that in for Abraham, he just did what was right. And he didn't flinch. And we need to follow his example. Secondly, we need to learn from our text that faith, trust God, When instructions don't seem quite right, you know, go kill your son. Are are you sure? Your only son whom you love, Isaac, you know, the son of promise, go kill him and then burn him. Now, I want you to go back to that place you fled from. Go back to Pharaoh, whose household you severely dissed, confront him to his face repeatedly and tell him to let you go and your people. Are are you sure? Now, when you leave, I want you to camp right on the shore of the Red Sea here. What if the army comes? We'll be trapped there. That's where I want you. Okay. You see, God asks us to do things at times and we think, "Mm, 
Mm. This does not seem good to me. This does not seem wise to me. I, are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure you want me to tell the government all the money that I made? I mean, if I, if I don't tell them, I could give some to church. <laughs> you know, should I really stop paying people under the table? You know, I don't know how my business could survive if I, if I, if I quit doing that. Should I really tell my coworkers that my favorite hobby is studying the Bible? I mean, it could ruin my witness with them. <laughs> Should I really faithfully and consistently discipline my child? They're so cute and cherubic most of the time. <laughs> I mean, aren't they just going to grow out of it? Should I really keep loving my unbelieving husband or wife, even though they don't return my love that I extend to them. You know, God asks us to do a lot of, a lot of things. And sometimes in our reasoning, we just think this, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem right. And yet we learn from this text. It's always right to obey God. Even when, when our wisdom says, no, no, this is going to be a disaster. God knows what's best. Third, and we've kind of alluded to it already, faith obeys God even in the face of opposition. You know, Pharaoh opposed Moses. The Israelites opposed Moses. Remember, they hated his God. So yeah, as soon as you came and told, you know, Pharaoh that we were going to go, now he's making his work and he's not even providing the materials. We've got to find our own straw. Get out of here. I mean, you know, he's getting attacked from Pharaoh and attacked from his own people that he's there to help. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. The apostles, of course, were sent out to preach the gospel. And the religious leaders said, stop preaching in Jesus' name. We read this in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. What it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God. You be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking that which we have seen and heard. We're not stopping. We command you to stop. No, no, no. You have to. Sorry. So we're not doing it. That is some faith, some hard faith in action, in spiritual battle against the forces of darkness. For faith considers God is who God is and believes God for things, even those things not specifically promised. Like Abraham, who came to that conclusion that like, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. It's like the centurion. You remember in Luke 7, the centurion where his slaves dying and he's come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. So he sends some messengers to Jesus and says, can you see if Jesus will come and heal my slave? And then after he sends him, he begins to think that was dumb. I mean, he's God. He doesn't need to come here. So he sends another slave out. Go, go meet Jesus. I think he's on his way here. And, and just tell him, just say the word. I mean, if you're God and you're all powerful and you know all things, you don't need to be, you know, three feet away. You can do it from the other side of the universe. Just say the word. I mean, I'm a man of authority and I tell people to do things and they do what I do. So you're God. You say anything you want. Just say the word. And Jesus marveled and said, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. He understood who God was and reasoned from that, that God could do this thing and said, just speak the word. And Jesus did. And he was healed. 
Sometimes you encounter things and they seem big. They seem huge. You know, one of the reasons we're doing this series is because of the children's building. I just, I got, I really kind of got tired of people saying, oh, you know, how are we going to pay for that thing? Yeah, God's up there pulling out his hair. Oh, no. (laughs) If I only had more power, I could get it done. We need to believe that he can pay for the children's building. He can move in our hearts. He can move in other people's hearts. He can move in the hearts of an unbeliever to just, you know, some guy needs a tax write-off, some billionaire, and I'll give it to this church. He can do it. You need to believe that. You need to not doubt that. And even if it isn't paid off next week or two weeks from now or two months from now, it's like we still need to believe he can do it and not doubt him and not turn to men for our deliverance. We look to God for deliverance. God can use men. We look to God. We have faith in God that he is able. He is all powerful. He can make it happen. It's just, you know, there's so many examples of that. I love it when Joseph has been mistreated by his brothers and, you know, framed for rape. And he's been in prison all that time. And in one day, in one day, he goes from being a prisoner to ruler of all Egypt. Who could ever see that coming? God. God. Charles Wesley wrote about the character of God glorifying faith. And he said this. Father of Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior, and my head, I trust thee whose powerful word hath raised him from the dead. I hope against all human hope, self-desperate, I believe. Thy quickening word shall raise me up. Thou shalt thy spirit give. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. To thee, the glory of thy power and faithfulness I give, I shall in Christ at that glad hour and Christ in me shall live. Obedient faith that waits on thee, thou never will reprove, but thou will form thy son in me. And perfect me in love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the men and women we have seen in this text who are examples in faith in one degree and one way or another. We know they are here for us so that we would do the same. Father, I pray that we would all have greater lives of faith that we would trust you more trust your promises more believe you more not doubt you not turn to men not turn to our strength not turn to our wisdom or someone else's wisdom we would trust you we would cry out to you we would believe in you and put no help in our flesh or in mankind father there's somebody here who has never believed on the lord jesus christ may they do that today may they see themselves as a sinner and jesus as the savior the great redeemer of sinners. And may they confess their sin. May they admit it. And may they believe in saving faith and may you cause them to be born again. For the rest of us, may we leave here today encouraged and motivated that we have a God who deserves all faith. 
all degrees of faith. For you are perfectly faithful and nothing is impossible with you. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.